0: A couple of weeks ago at uh, Bob McWilliams Memorial Service, uh, I saw uh, several of the Sanders and uh, was telling David that occasionally on a Sunday morning when I get up for the uh, sermon or whatever, I will say, uh, you remember what Brother Bill used to say, right, so I will get up and I will remind them that Brother Bill used to say this, but that I'm using this copyrighted phrase by, commission, by permission. Good morning, church. And a lot of you remember that and remember how that used to go, right? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Hang in there with me because I want to start this morning by reading the first 13 verses. We're going to focus on a few key themes here, but I want us to have the fuller context of this uh, as we focus on the specific theme for this morning. Beginning with verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2 It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of christ i'm not leaving I'm going to get what we call a sermon prop i want you to meet bb Anybody know B.B.? I think most of you know B.B., right? This is B.B. For Bible Bowl. Let's put up here so everybody can see him. Okay. This is B.B., the Bible Bowl robot. He's served in this role for close to 35 years. The only one who's been doing Bible Bowl longer than me. He's pretty much held together now by spit and chewing gum. Again, a lot like me. And B.B.'s best days are behind him again a lot like me because he used to light up and he used to make sounds some of you may remember that day Of course I've never done that never lit up and made sounds but he's still here 16 weeks each year for Bible Bowl so he's sort of hanging in there the mascot but there's no life in him he's dead now suppose you were to say to him B.B. you need to live by the Ten Commandments you need to love the Lord with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Well, B.B., hey, anybody in there? B.B., doesn't seem too responsive, does he? I could yell at him. I could encourage him. But it doesn't help to do that because B.B. can't do it. He doesn't have the ability. He's dead. He was never alive to begin with. Think about what God is saying here. In Ephesians chapter 2. He's not saying this about Bibi. He's saying this about us. You were dead in your sins. This passage doesn't tell us that the sinner is weak. It says that the sinner is dead. That means he can't act. He can't feel. He can't move. He is completely unresponsive to God. That was all of us before we trusted in Christ no matter how hard a problem someone might feel okay about himself if he thinks that he has the ability to get out of it if you tell someone he or she has a sinful nature they might tell you that they'll fight it if you tell them well you're under the wrath of God as Paul tells us here in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 where he says we were children of wrath someone might tell you hey I'll do better I'll live a good life because I'm a good person but if you tell someone that he's dead that there's absolutely nothing that he can do about his own situation, then most people are going to be insulted by that. And that person might have a much harder time accepting what you've told him about himself. Yet that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Ephesians and through us, uh, to us down through the centuries here this morning. And in other verses that we'll look at briefly this morning. We need to ponder the weight of this clearly taught biblical truth here this morning. The reason we need a Savior is not just that we are in the doghouse with God and need to be forgiven for offending his glory. We need a Savior because we are in the morgue. In the doghouse you might whimper, you might say you were sorry, you might make some good resolutions, you might decide to cast yourself on the mercy of God. But what can you do if you are in the morgue? If this means what it looks like, it means we didn't need just any ordinary Savior. We needed a great Savior. Verse 3 of Ephesians 2 tells us that we were children of wrath by nature. This is what we are apart from Christ. Apart from Christ's sacrifice for us, this is our identity. At the end of verse 2, it says we're sons of disobedience. That's another way of telling us disobedience to God is in our genes. Just as much as I'm half Irish and half German, I'm all disobedience. 100% of my nature, my identity, apart from Christ. It's my sin nature. I'm alive to disobedience, but dead to obedience to God. I needed a Savior, not only to forgive me for my sins, but also to give me spiritual life. Why? My heart was predisposed disobedience. I was unable to obey. So I needed this infusion of spiritual life to enable me to trust him and obey him because I was dead and needed the life that's found only in Christ. Do you begin to see how incredibly horrible our condition is without a savior? Since we had no spiritual life in us, but only death, everything we did was sin, even our good deeds, because they were not done to the glory of God. B.B. here is a good reminder of where we start with our kids in Bible. The A-verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And who does anything for the glory of God when he's spiritually dead? What did Jesus think, you might wonder, of this reality of our deadness? Was it okay with him? Well, we read in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are of hypocrisy and iniquity. So when we might think, well, unbelievers can do good things, we see that, don't we? Here's an example of the righteous, the good deed-doing dead man, a man who's clean, in this case, even religious on the outside, like a shiny wood or metal casket in the county morgue, but inside are decaying flesh and bones and death. We can see that the good deeds we might do don't excuse our deadness to God. The reason we can't submit and obey without a Savior is because we don't want to. The power of our cannot is the depth of our will not. We must take the Bible seriously here. It doesn't say you were trapped in your sins. It doesn't say your sins are a problem. It says you are dead dead in your sins. If a man falls into a pit, you can throw him a rope, but if he's a dead man in the pit, the rope won't help him at all. Have you ever watched the news or been on social media or maybe experienced in person someone who is spewing hatred toward God, hatred toward Christians, or celebrating sin, or they just have an attitude of total acceptance of something the Bible calls sinful? At that point, you might be inclined to think, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm guessing some of us have thought this. Wouldn't it be an amazing miracle if that person could come to Christ? And clearly, it would be. But when isn't it? When isn't it a miracle for someone to trust in Christ for salvation? When does a, what does a dead heart look like? It looks like my dead heart before I trusted in Christ. Personally, I don't have the amazing life turned around and saved from all this bad stuff testimony that many of us here in this room have. I've never smoked. I've never been drunk. I've never used illegal drugs. I was never arrested. I was never rebellious. I never got into any trouble as a teenager before I came to Christ at age 16. I could be like Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and I could recount all the things that made me a quote-unquote good person. Starting with verse 3 in Philippians 3, Paul says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And then here's where he begins to justify himself apart from Christ and say, Hey, if anybody could come to Christ without Christ, I could do it. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumscribed on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. You remember how the Pharisees kept the law? To the letter. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But a few verses later, Paul calls all these impressive credentials and some of the things that made him a righteous Jew, he calls them garbage. I consider them garbage, he wrote, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The fact that I don't have a long list of things that God rescued me from is still a powerful testimony. It's a testimony of his preserving grace, just as undeserved, just as unearnable as the grace that saved some of you former druggies out there. Now, you know who you are. Just because I was a pretty good kid doesn't change the truth of Romans 3.23. All have sinned. And it doesn't change the truth of Ephesians 2. You were dead in your sins. I have sinned. I was dead. And none of my goodness as a child and then teenager added up to anything close to what could save me. I wasn't half dead. I was really and completely dead. It reminded me of this video clip. Jerry, you ready with the audio? You may recognize this from The Wizard of Oz. As coroner, I must cover. I thoroughly examined her. And she's not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. Not only merely dead, really most sincerely dead. That applies to all of us, my brothers and sisters, apart from Christ not just the wicked witch of the West. Here's another practical application of this truth, you were dead. I think we sometimes tend to believe that some people are harder to save than others, as though God is somehow limited by people's backgrounds or the sinfulness, the horrible nature, maybe, of their sins. Maybe somehow God will have a hard, harder time really reaching this person or that person, Maybe the neighbor who has the gay pride banner on his porch or the person on social media who's constantly spewing foul language and the constant post-belittling Christians and affirming sinful behavior. Maybe it's the relative who can't seem to hide her disgust for pro-lifers. But it's just not true that these people are any harder to save than you and me. Salvation is Each and every soul is a miracle every time. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a moment of awakening a dead, hostile heart every time. It's a but God being rich in mercy, as we see in verse 4, miracle. Whether you were born and raised in the church or you were a committed atheist until the very moment he opened your eyes, your salvation, my salvation, was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. I sometimes wonder if people like me, and this would include many of you who were pretty good people, maybe maybe you were raised in the church. There's a lot of us here who were raised in the church. Maybe you have a strong, handed-down example of faith. We think we were somehow more inclined to salvation. We were maybe more savable, if you will. To think that somehow we're easier for God to save than the rest of those heathens in the world, the drug uh, pushers like Gordon was. To think that those people are really most sincerely dead, but I was just half dead. But the gospel truth is that I wasn't just half dead. I still needed the complete package, the absolute miracle outlined in Ephesians chapter 2. The God-given salvation by grace, faith in Christ Jesus. That's not my own doing so that I can't boast about my own goodness. Maybe it wasn't as easy for people to see the pride in me, to see the alienation toward God, to see the self-centeredness rooted so deeply in me before I came to Christ. Well, we don't see that, Bill. Gee, but I was a whitewashed tomb. Maybe I didn't demonstrate with signs that promote abortion. Maybe I didn't get drunk on weekends like so many of my high school friends did. Maybe I didn't have sexual exploits to brag about like, again, some of my high school friends did. Maybe I didn't swear like a sailor. Oh, wait, I did do that. Not proud of it. But Jesus was not Lord of my life. Until that time in my life, 50 years ago next year, that he set my dead heart to beating and made me alive in Christ. I didn't need Jesus any less. I wasn't any less a sinner than that person who was more openly and obviously in sin. None of us needs Christ less or more than the other Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by him. It tells us in John chapter 14 verse 6. We read in Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among them by which we must be saved. And we read in John chapter 3 verse 36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. We are all far away from God until Jesus brings us near. But God, being rich in mercy, we see that. Those have got to be some of the best words in Scripture, and we see it again and again. We see, this is how things were, but God. This is how bad it was, but God. What a great Phrase, if you'd remember anything from Scripture, remember, but God, He intervened. So our testimonies of faith in Christ will all look different. Some like Paul's, like some of you, will be more dramatic. It's this kind of stuff that movies are made of and books are written about. And though Paul could brag about his Jewish righteousness credentials, he was also the persecutor who became a missionary and wrote much of our Bible. That's a story that will sell. That's a story that will excite. But other stories like Timothy's in Scripture, they'll be more quiet. They'll be a little bit more ordinary. The result of a faithful family that taught him the Word of God and lots of parental prayer. Many of our youth and young adults here will have a testimony of faith like Timothy, assuming you don't stray from what you learned here. You'll have that kind of testimony and it'll be wonderful. But any testimony of God's saving grace is a story of a miracle. All stories of salvation tell of the life-giving power of God who raised Jesus from the dead so that when he makes a person alive in Christ, a dead heart starts beating. As we see twice promised in Ezekiel, a heart of stone is transformed into a heart of stone of flesh, a responsive heart of flesh. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away; behold, new things have come. A corpse takes a breath. A former dead heart starts beating and is now alive. So, though my story and some of your stories of faith may be ordinary, they may not sound miraculous, and no one will ever make a movie or write a book about it. It was no less miraculous than Paul's story, because there are no half-dead hearts. It should be noted that the same grace that makes a dead heart beat also continues to do a work in us as we walk with Christ. The moment our dead heart begins to beat is when we are justified, but the very same Holy Spirit that made us new creations is still at work in us as God sanctifies us. That is, He changes us more and more each day as we follow Him into His image. He purifies us. He makes us whole. When you come to life in Christ, He begins a growth and a change process that continues until your last breath. Now, some of you took Steve Staub's great message to heart last week. And you've been marinating in Colossians. And you may also remember this verse. Which uh, Joel didn't know what I was preaching on this morning. But he read it introducing communion. It reinforces what we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 2. It's from Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, some of you who've been believers for a long time may be thinking, well, yes, Bill, but we we know this. This is kind of Gospel 101, isn't it? What does that have to do with us today? How is this relevant? We're saved, praise God. Move on to something more relevant to our daily lives. This is an example of how theology isn't just for debate. It isn't for ivory tower theologians. It isn't just for Bible scholars. Doctrine is immensely practical. It is, as people are fond of saying, relevant. And it always is. It's the word of God. And as we've noted before from this pulpit, it's our authority. It's the foundation for the way we live our lives and grow in Christ. So why is this important? Well, first of all, I thought, this fact of our faith that we were dead in our sins before we trusted in Christ should cause us to fall on our knees in thanksgiving and humility. If you're dead and you can't do anything, and now you're alive, thank you, God. Ephesians 2.8 in the passage we read at the beginning tells us how this now beating heart that used to be dead is a gift. It's a gift of God we should always be grateful for gifts, right? Things freely given to us from anybody because gratitude in everything should be always the posture of a people saved by grace. But this gift, this particular gift, the gift of eternal life, a responsive heart that was formerly like B.B. here, right? Or a stone that is unresponsible, unresponsive, I should say, and unable to come to faith without God's redemptive intervention on our behalf should not just lead us to gratitude, but in that gratitude, worship. In that gratitude, worship. You were dead. Now you are alive in Christ. And it's a gift. If that doesn't make you want to give God glory and honor and praise and thank, I don't know what will. Another application I thought of is that in our gratitude for salvation, so it's related, it should make a clear difference in how we live our lives in Christ. It should make a difference in our heart attitudes. It should make a difference in our choices. It should make a difference in what we do and what we don't do. Again, in Ephesians, right after we see that this resurrected heart we have is a gift from God, we see a related consequence of this fact of our salvation, that it's a dead heart that's now beating. Verse 10 tells us, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, right? For good works, we're created for good works, which God paired beforehand that we should walk in them. Walking in them, all that really means is simply living them out, part and parcel of our lives. We read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6, "Oh, that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So paraphrasing this, in light of our understanding that our hearts were dead, we might say this, we know that our dead hearts are now beating in Christ if we keep his commands. This is how we know we're not dead in our sins anymore. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Verses 12 and 13 at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, the passage we read at the beginning say this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is a key takeaway, an application of the reality that you were dead. I was dead. These verses take it even further, as if you needed to take it any further than you were dead. It says, "We were separated from God." It says, "We were alienated from His people. We were strangers to His promise." It says, "Apart from Christ, we have no hope and no God." That's a pretty despairing, low place to be. But the first word in these verses is "Remember. Remember." Remember these things. It relates again to our gratitude and our humility. Don't ever forget where you came from. You came from the grave. You were dead. Unless we see and feel and understand the great need that each one of us has for a Savior, we don't feel or see or understand that He is a great Savior. He's a Savior who conquered sin and death for you and for me picture two people out in a car for a drive the rider in the passenger seat knows that there is a time bomb in the trunk and that any second it might blow the car to pieces the driver doesn't believe there is one and he thinks that his rider is nuts the state patrol has been alerted and they know the car is indeed carrying a bomb and it's going to go off The rider suddenly sees the state patrol far in the distance behind him with the lights flashing and the siren blaring. His heart leaps, why? For possible rescue. Maybe I won't die. If you are the rider who knows that there's a bomb in the trunk, the flashing red lights in the distance are very precious. And the closer they get, the more precious they become. But if you're the driver and you don't think there's a bomb in the trunk, Flashing red lights might feel like a threat. What do they want after me for? We should never forget, my brothers and sisters, what it would have been like if the patrol, the Holy Spirit, had not pursued you. We should always remember what you were and would have become without a Savior. Part of our ongoing devotional life should be obeying what it says in Ephesians 2:12. Remember, remember, remember that you were dead. Remember that you were without hope. Remember that Jesus makes all things new and you are a new creation in Christ and have eternal life to look forward to. Because Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross and rose again so that our dead hearts could be resurrected in this life and in the life to come. Finally, this fact of our faith should help us remember that no one is beyond the reach of God's Holy Spirit-empowered resurrection of our dead hearts. Thank God this passage begins with, You were dead. Paul's writing to believers who aren't dead anymore, which is why he reminds them that you were dead. Past tense. You were dead. If that's true... And it's also true that this work of resurrecting the dead is always a miracle, regardless of how evil someone might look or how good someone might look. We must keep in mind that God is still at work, no matter how hopeless they might look to us. One example from Scripture, in just a few chapters we see, actually several examples, in chapters 8 through 10 of Acts, we see an occultist, Simon the sorcerer. We see a sexually broken government executive, the Ethiopian eunuch, right? We see a religious moralist who hates Christianity and hates Christian. That's Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul. And we see a military leader from the occupying Roman force, Cornelius. All of these people in those few chapters they encounter Jesus. They were all dead. They were all dead in their sins and all of them found new life in Christ. So when we look around at our broken culture, and we have this tendency sometimes to think, well, these people are just so far, there's no way. There's no way. They're practically unsavable. Or we think about our loved ones who aren't in Christ, and sometimes we despair. But when we look at Scripture, we see people who were dead in their sins and just as seemingly unsavable as some of the people that we look at in our culture and even in our families today. None of these in scripture were beyond the reach of the gospel. None today is any less savable than you or I were, because it always takes the miracle of the gospel to save any soul. We don't need to reshape somehow the gospel message in any way to somehow make it more relevant or... Acceptable to our culture. Think about Simon the sorcerer. The gospel was not acceptable to Simon the sorcerer. Until it was. The gospel was a horrible offense. To the self-righteous faith of Saul the persecutor of the church. Until God took his dead heart. Made it beat with the power of the Holy Spirit. And transformed him into the Apostle Paul. The gospel didn't seem necessary to me. A Catholic kid. Until it was. And that was not of my own doing, my brothers and sisters. So I, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, cannot boast in anything. I was dead. But now I'm alive in Christ. May the Lord continually remind us of the truth of this passage, of his amazing grace and his resurrection power, and work it into our lives, work it into our spirits, as we remember continually what he has accomplished for us. And let's let it impact the way we think and the way we live our lives. Amen? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that the reality that we were dead is a past tense thing for those of us who are in Christ. We are grateful, Heavenly Father, for the reality of but God being rich in mercy. We were dead, but because... God is rich in mercy. We can have eternal life. We're grateful for the miracle of salvation. The greatest miracle ever accomplished that ever will be has been accomplished, Lord, is the miracle of taking a heart of uh, stone and turning it into a heart of flesh, of taking a heart that was dead and unresponsive and making it into a responsive heart ready to serve you. Help us keep these things in mind, Father, as we live our lives in Christ. Help us to be obedient to you. Help us to follow you in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.